Hello, everyone. Welcome to our listeners in the Big Apple from across the U.S. and around the world. I'm Jeff Goodman, and you've tuned into Rediscovering New York. Professionally, I'm a real estate broker with Halstead Real Estate, and I love this city. Rediscovering New York is a weekly program about the history, texture, and vibe of our amazing city. On most shows, we focus on an individual New York neighborhood, exploring their history and their current energy. What makes those New York neighborhoods special? And we do it through interviews with historians, local business owners, nonprofit organizations, preservationists, local musicians, and artists, and the occasional elected official. Sometimes, like tonight, we host a show about an interesting and vital color of the city that is not focused on one particular neighborhood. On prior episodes, you've heard us talk about the history of U.S. presidents who came through New York, the history of the women's suffrage movement in the city. We've talked about the history of the city's LGBT community and the gay rights movement. We've explored the history of bicycles and cycling in New York. New Yorkers have been cycling for more than 200 years. And we've covered the history of punk and opera. In the future, we'll journey to some of the city's parks, the subway, some of their more interesting cemeteries, or the city in the age of a specific social or political movement. After the broadcast, each show is available on podcast. You can hear us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and other services. Tonight, we're going to be exploring the history, architecture, and the magnificence of New York's two greatest train stations. Of course, I'm referring to Pennsylvania Station and Grand Central Terminal, which some people still refer to as Grand Central Station, although it's not that really that name. That's the name of the post office that's outside the station, which we'll talk about a little bit. Uh, although each of those stations move more people each day than any other train station in the United States, they do have differences. When one station went up, it was a new station where none had been before. That's Pennsylvania Station. The other, Grand Central, was a third incarnation of a station that had been on the same spot. One became a terminal. The other was not. It was a regular station. One already had train tracks leading to the location of the third incarnation of the station. The other one did not. It was new. And in this, the biggest engineering wonder of one of these stations was in the tunnels that were built in and out of Manhattan to access it. To access it. With the other, it was building a new terminal with tracks and platforms on two magnificent levels. And of course, sadly, the biggest contrast was in their survival. The magnificence of one is past tense. We lost it in the early 60s, and its new incarnation was nothing like the original, which we'll also talk about. The other was in danger of being lost, but it was saved thanks to one of the country's and New York's great heroines of the 20th century. We will talk about her as well. And the fight to keep both of them led to a profound law in New York that was tested all the way up to the United States Supreme Court and which we have to thank for the preservation of so much of our architectural beauty in New York and in other parts of the country. Welcome to episode 51, New York's Greatest Train Stations. My first guest is Justin Rivers. Justin is the chief experience officer for Untapped New York, and he's also the lead tour guide. He started his career as a New York City middle school English language arts teacher on the Lower East Side. Justin dragged his students to historic sites across the city in an effort to bring New York City's lesser-known stories to life. That's how he became co-creator of a book called The Wonder City, a graphic novel that reimagines New York's entire history. He was also the playwright and producer of The Eternal Space, an off-Broadway play that centered on the demolition of New York City's Pennsylvania Station. It was with this production and one simple tweet that he fell head over heels for then-untapped cities, whom he partnered with for his Remnants of Penn Station tour. Along with his role as Chief Experience Officer, Justin is the founding director of the Character Connection Initiative, a nonprofit organization that connects character education and mindfulness to middle school curricula. He's also creator and lead tour guide for some of Untapped New York's popular tours, including the underground tour of the New York City subway, the tour of the remnants of Dutch New Amsterdam, the secrets of the Brooklyn Bridge, tour of the remnants of the World's Fair, Flushing and Flushing Meadow, the tour of the secrets of Coney Island. I did know Coney Island still had secrets. I should know that. <laughs> I was married there. The maritime history of New York, the hidden gems of the Rafael Guastavino tour, and the art in the New York City subway walking tour. Justin Rivers, a Hearty welcome to Rediscovering New York. 
Thank you for having me. Actually, welcome back. You were yes. on a prior show when we talked about two great bridges. Now we're two great train stations. Yep. Are you from New York originally, Justin? I was born about 10-ish miles outside of New York in a town called Hackensack, New Jersey, which uh, born in the shadow of the city and the George Washington Bridge. Uh, when I was uh, about eight or nine, we moved a little further north uh, to a top of a mountain, and then I came to Fordham University for college and never left. So. Well, home is where the heart is, exactly. and it's great to have you as a New Yorker. Oh, thank you. Um, so it was you being a teacher on the Lower East Side of all places that got you hooked into sharing what's special about New York and its history professionally? Yeah. So I was teaching history to 6th, 7th, and 8th graders in Lower East Side, and they could care less. Um, and, uh, you know, tell them to open the book, and they would just moan and groan. So I said, you know, you guys live in the most history-dense area of the country. Uh, being on the Lower East Side. So I would take him around the neighborhoods, bring him down to the financial district, make him touch the fence at Bowling Green, you know, the whole thing. And they loved it. And that's, I was hooked on it. So, mm. Well, how long after your teaching career did you change the focus of your career to what you're doing now? Uh, it's probably about eight years being in the classroom full time. Uh, decided to do more history-based projects, loved to write, uh, wrote the show about Penn Station. Um, and that's where it sort of pivoted right there. Mm. Well, let's let's go to Penn Station. Sure. Before Pennsylvania Station, that was the official name, but mm. everyone knows it as Penn Station, was built and completed in 1910. What other ways were there to access the city by rail if you weren't taking the New York Central into Grand Central at that point? Yeah, so uh, New York Central was the game in town to get directly into Manhattan, which really vexed the Pennsylvania Railroad, which uh, was a very successful train company. They were neck-and-neck neck rivals, and they had to terminate their riders uh, on the west shore of the Hudson. So your option was terminate the Hudson. Um, there were five different depots. Uh, Exchange Place was Pennsylvania Station's depot. There were five uh, different railroad companies. The five different railroad uh, companies okay. that would deposit their riders at different Hoboken, Pavonia, Communicapaw. Um, but Exchange Place was the major uh, hub for Pennsylvania Railroad. And um, they had to take ferries across. That was your option. And it was painstaking. It was awful ferry traffic on the river. And then once you got to the West Shore, you had to fight your way into the center of the island. So uh, Pennsylvania Railroad wanted to remedy that as quickly as they could. And indeed they did. Yes. Why did they pick the site of where Penn Station is now? What was it about that site that had them pick that? Uh, one of the main reasons was it was cheap. Uh, also, it was lined up uh, with Exchange Place to a certain degree so they could do a straight shot tunnel right under the island from uh, Long Island City straight through to the 30s and then back out to um, the west shore of New York. But also the Tenderloin District or area, which is what the uh, area where Penn is it used to be known was very, very affordable. Uh, basically, it was considered a slum back then. Uh, so buy up the land cheap, clear it out, and do your dig. It was, it was actually pretty unusual for a station in that they also got the Long Island Railroad involved with it. Correct. How did, they, how did the Long Island Railroad become involved? Because the Long Island Railroad would terminate in Long Island City. Correct. So, and then uh, you'd have to take another ferry to get to... Yeah, so uh, the Long Island Railroad had the same problem the Penzi did. Uh, and when I say Penzi, Penzi is the shortened name for Pennsylvania Railroad. Um, uh, they had to bring their riders over ferries on the East River. So it was sort of a, a great marriage made for them. Uh, one of the reasons why they sort of got into bed with each other, uh, two reasons was um, the LIRR needed to sort of partner up with somebody infrastructurally to get their riders. And they didn't have the money or the means to get people from Long Island into Midtown. Um, they also held some of the proprietary rights to carry uh, trains over the Hudson, and the Pennsylvania Railroad needed those. Pennsylvania Railroad also needed a partner. New York City wanted them to partner with another uh, train station, uh, train uh, corporation to do their work, and uh, they were very attainable for the Pennsylvania Railroad. Pennsylvania Railroad was the first billion-dollar company in the United States. Wow, and reached a billion dollars yeah. in sales? Wow. <clears throat> yeah, first billion-dollar company. And uh, LIRR was not, <laughs> you know, they were a very small, small change type of operation out east in uh, Long Island. So basically the Pennsylvania Railroad needed to buy up the leadership and they did. They got into a partnership and um, uh, they didn't care. They, were, they thought it was great because they were going to have access into Midtown Manhattan. But Pennsylvania Railroad, very shrewd businessmen, after everything was signed, sealed and delivered, said, oh, by the way, your terminal will be in the basement. You're not getting the... 
<laughs> you're not getting the grand entrance the grand that our entrance. riders are above uh, one floor above. Well, that also happened to a uh, different extent in Grand Central, as we'll talk about with our second guest, mm-hmm. was when Grand Central first went up, the, the lower level was created for the commuter. Commuter, right. And the intercity trains were on, on the upper level. Right. Before we actually talk about the, the architectural influences of the Great Penn Station, um, I want to talk a bit about the, uh, the feat of engineering that went into building those tunnels. Um, they had to construct three, they had to construct uh, three mile-long tunnels from Queens to go to Midtown, and they actually went under two streets. Um, how long did it take them to do that? Uh, the whole process, I believe, from start to finish was about seven and a half years, which actually, if you look at infrastructural projects, <laughs> that get done now is absolutely lightning fast. Um, uh, it, you know, it's because they worked on two fronts and met in the middle. But I think one of the craziest feats was that they had to, the IRT, Interborough Rapid Transit, did not want them to be interfering or causing um, competition with their services. Uh, and they saw themselves going under the Hudson at some point as well. And they wanted them far, far below. So they had to dig under the riverbeds into bedrock go under the island and basically right over through to Long Island, which was an incredible feat. So they just didn't tunnel through sand. They actually had to get through rock. They had to get through rock, yeah. And it it was incredible what they did. You know, something I've always wondered, I don't know if anybody else has wondered this, but um, especially with the congestion in the tunnels under the Hudson now, they built a tunnel with, they built two tunnels with just two tracks under the Hudson, but they built two tunnels with four tracks going to the East River. Um, why did they decide to have double the capacity going under the East River to the Long Island Railroad, but not uh, to New Jersey, my underst- which was their main train line? My understanding was uh, part of the deal with the LIRR was that they would get their own devoted tunnel, whereas uh, Pennsylvania Railroad used one. LIRR used one. Pennsylvania Railroad only needed one under the Hudson, which now we mm-hmm. think is extremely short-sighted since we're dealing what we're dealing with with the North River mm-hmm. Tunnel now. Um, and they were two independent contracts. So it was the North River and the East River under something called the Manhattan Tunnel Extension Project, or New York Tunnel Extension Project, uh, which was a separate initiative uh, spearheaded by the Pennsylvania Railroad. So uh, LIRR got their own devoted set of tracks. And at some point, the Pennsylvania Railroad decided to extend their service to New England, because at some point they decided to build uh, from the uh, the tunnels that went under the East River, they built uh, um, a spur, and they built the Hellgate Bridge, right. which then connects to, which, which is an extraordinary piece of oh, engineering. Yeah. Oh, it's, still, when you look at it, it's like, oh my God, that thing is amazing. One thing I like about taking the M60 bus in the daytime is looking... Yeah, <laughs> you, you can't, you just imagine, you look at the Hellgate and you realize just how big a scale the Pennsylvania Railroad built on. Uh, and, of course, the Hellgate Bridge was also uh, an inspiration for that famous bridge in Sydney that we saw. Right. There was a similar Correct. architecture to it. Um, what were some of the architectural influences that went into building the original Penn Station? So McKimmead and White, the architects, uh, Alexander Cassatt, the president, Samuel Ray, the vice president, they all took a trip to Europe, spent some time out there, and they, um, they mishmashed things. So the Roman Baths of Caracalla were a big influence for the main waiting room, which was dead center of the uh, station. Uh, Brandenburg Gates in Germany were sort of the inspiration for the 7th Avenue facade. If you look at the 7th Avenue facade and you look at the Brandenburg Gates, they're very, very close. Uh, and then the uh, the concourse area in the back of the station was heavily influenced by Dorsey in Paris because Alexander Cassatt was brother of Mary Cassatt, the painter. And the first place they went was Dorsey mm. in Paris. You know, one of the things that also, um, I've not been to the baths of uh, Caracalla, but I've been to the ruins of the of the Diocletian mm. baths. And there's something, I've, I don't remember the original Penn Station. I was three when it was, when it was demolished. But uh, there was something about looking at some of those pictures of the original Penn Station and my views of standing both in the ruins of the baths of Diocletian and also the uh, Basilica of Santa Maria degli Angeli e dei Martiri, which beautiful, is the beautiful, Basilica of St. Mary and <laughs> the Angels of the Martyrs and like so yeah. much of, of, of what they did in not ancient Rome, but uh, Michelangelo designed that church from part of the ruins of, 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 of the Bass. Well, anyway, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Justin Rivers of Untapped New York uh, and Pennsylvania Station. Be back in a minute. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network.
Do you run or are ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. back to Rediscovering New York, Two Great Bridges, and our first bridge of the evening. Bridges, excuse me. <laughs> two great train stations. We were talking about the Hellgate Bridge during the break. Two great train stations. Uh, the first one on our uh, journey tonight is Pennsylvania Station, the original Pennsylvania Station. My first guest is Justin Rivers, the Chief Experience Officer of Untapped New York. Um, Justin, tell us about some upcoming tours you have in Untapped New York. Uh, so, uh, Funny enough, tomorrow I am actually doing a remnants of uh, Penn Station tour. Uh, also, my underground subway tour back to back. I will be on trains all day uh, and in train stations. Um, I'm also launching a coffee tour this weekend. Actually, first first run of it, coffee in the village, history of coffee and development down there, and uh, just the usual. Uh, Dutch New Amsterdam. I too run a Grand Central a couple times a week, so. I am around. And how can people find out about the tours for Untapped New so York? So all through uh, untappednewyork.com slash tours. Right when you get to the homepage, there's a big blue button at the top, and you can see all that we've got to offer. Also, a lot of tours I do not lead as well as chief experience officer, sort of also managing some of the other great stuff that we have going on there. Mm. And you have some great tours. I've been on some of them. Not all of them, but uh, I've been on a number of them. Well, thank you. Uh, and also a number of the special events that you and Michelle put together. That's Michelle Young. Um, I want to continue with talking about the design of Grand Central, one of the, of Pennsylvania Station. One of the things that's interesting about it is that the walls were actually made of pink granite. Yeah. How did they decide to do that? Uh, uh, it, pink granite, was, again, it was a showpiece. Um, most of it came from uh, either Connecticut or Tennessee or uh, Vinyl Haven in Maine. And uh, again, it was one of those things where the Pennsylvania Railroad sort of wanted to flex their might. They just got the granite. They brought it down. They barged it down. Um, and... Uh, it was the look of it, and because of the size of the campus, uh, considering that it was you know three city blocks and two avenues, uh, the amount of granite they used, I don't have the exact number, someday I'll get it in my head, uh, was insane. Um, and you saw it from the street, and when it was clean, it was just a gleaming sight to see. Well, speaking about gleamingness, um, yeah. one of the things that strikes me about Penn Station compared to, to Grand Central so when you look at interior pictures of the old Penn Station, I mean, really old Penn Station before maybe even some of the grime gathered on top, mm. uh, light, light streamed in through in a way that it doesn't with Grand Central. That's because many, there were many vaulted skylights on, the, on, on this top, not stone as designed, with, uh, uh, as was the case with Grand Central. Um, do, you know, do we know how that configured into McKim Eden's White's design, why they did that, uh, as opposed to just build a regular roof? Well, I think one of the reasons was actually... Uh, Cost. So this was a 24-hour station in which they did not want to electrify all day. They didn't have to. Um, so, you know, they one of the, the, the masterpieces of Penn, which is one of the remnants, is the glass block floor that they used in the concourse. And that the idea behind the glass block floor was concrete poured glass so that the light coming in from the ceiling would stream down through the floor to the second level, would stream down from the second level to track level. So that daylight was basically coming from the sky through two levels of glass. Uh, they just wanted to give not only the grandeur 
with the natural light, but also that utility because it was going to be expensive to, to run electricity in that place all day long because it was huge. And you see, and and the tracks uh, to, in the old Penn Station were open to the platform. Yes. You could, you could, yeah, you could it was almost them. like being outside. When Grand Central was built, it was the largest train station in the world. It had more than 60 tracks when the station was completed around the time as, as, as Penn Station. Hmm. Penn Station had 21 tracks, about a third as many. Was there any consideration at all to creating two levels of tracks as they, as they had done with Grand Central? So interestingly enough, uh, Samuel Ray, who was behind the engineering of the station and the tracks itself, looked to Grand Central Station, not the terminal, which I know you guys are going to talk about. And the depot station footprint only had 12 tracks. So it was, uh, I think it was eight incoming and four outgoing. Um, so Pennsylvania Station thought they were a little bit ahead of the game with the refit of Grand Central Terminal with William Wilgus. They thought they were actually doing much better with 21. Um, and then, of course, William Wilgus swoops down and says, now nah, we're actually going to do 64 on two levels and see, see you later, guys. Um, and uh, that was basically, that, that was their thinking behind that. It was also the fact that they didn't have as much land to deal with uh, than Grand Central did. Grand Central, you know, carved out the east side. Right, right. What were some of the other innovations in station design that one would have found at Penn Station when, when it opened in 1910? So I think it was the idea, the, the biggest idea, which was uh, very interesting, um, was that it was a dual-level concourse, not the way that Grand Central was with uh, commuters and sort of regional. It was arriving and departing passengers came in on completely different floors. So if you were coming into New York, you arrived up a shorter set of stairs to a mid-level. Uh, if you were departing from New York, you went... Uh, straight down a larger set of stairs to the track. And so incoming and outgoing passengers never met. Uh, and that was a pretty wow. innovative idea back then. The problem was it was all based on very steep staircases, uh, which was one of uh, old Penn's biggest sort of gripes amongst the riders where you always felt like you were sort of climbing a mountain to get out to street level. No escalators in those days. No escalator <laughs> and no ramps, which again... Yeah. You know, William Wilgus. <laughs> yes, which we'll talk about with yes. our second guest. We're I talking do, yeah. about, uh, about Grand Central. Um, there was a special status but, uh, of, of, of Penn Station. Didn't the president, when he came to New York, usually come through Pennsylvania? Yeah, for the, for the most part, uh, with the exception of FDR, uh, most of the presidents came through Penn because it was connected to D.C. Hmm. Uh, it was a much more easier trip to come in, and uh, they were ceremoniously sort of received at Penn often. JFK, actually, right before he died, came through as it was being in mid-demolish almost. Did Pennsylvania Station have as much um, uh, traffic during the war years, during the Second World War, as Grand Central did? Because we hear a lot about Grand Central and how many, uh, how many soldiers moved through it. Yeah. Did Penn uh, Station the same? Even more. Uh, you know, because, again, the tracks are federalized during wartime, so they, they use whatever, whenever, uh, to move the troops around. And you have the pictures, uh, much like Grand Central, you've got the pictures of these troops, hundreds of troops just sitting around basically living. Uh, in the station waiting for their deployments. Um, the big war bond murals that were anchored to the walls of the main waiting room. Um, they had their own special processing booth. So uh, the, the military really took over Penn mm. for the years of the war. And then after the war, in the uh, changing transportation age of interstate highway systems in the jet age, uh, the railroad fell on hard times. Yeah. Um, the highway system, uh, they... Uh, Companies, airlines, you know, could fly people uh, pretty quickly, um, and fewer people were taking the train. Like Grand Central, did the Pennsylvania Railroad try to, like the New York Central, which ran Grand Central, did the, the New York, uh, did Pennsylvania, did the Pennsylvania Railroad try to mitigate the loss of revenue by using other assets in the station? Uh, n not as well. Um, you know, one of the things that they tried to do was they tried to modernize their image, which was actually another part of their downfall. Uh, they, they put in the late 50s, I think it was 1958, they put this giant clamshell computer ticket counter in the center of the uh, main waiting room, and it just plugged plugged everything up. It looked awful. It was an eyesore. And meanwhile, you've got Penn sort of degrading around it. And it, it never it never worked. Nobody bought it. And um, they didn't know what to do with the honking mass of station that they had. So they they went right to air rights. That was, that was their next. They had ideas to split the station in half and put a parking lot. Um, that, that didn't last too long. It, it wasn't going to ever sort of recoup the losses they were making in the 50s. Hmm. 
On one hand, you look at that uh, clamshell design, uh, and you can't ha- help but have a sense that they wanted to convince passengers that the railroading was getting was mo- as modern as flying. Yeah, right. with the exception of the fluorescent lights that I understand were in part of uh, part of that contraption. Um, but it also makes one wonder if they were trying to destroy Penn Station from the inside to destroy the image. Then the decision was made to raise it. Um, how did that come about, and what was the outcry at the time? So, uh, you know, they were facing bankruptcy, and they needed to figure out a way quick to, to make it viable, and they said air rights are the way to go, so let's find somebody who could use the space and pay for it, and so Madison Square Garden Corporation was a natural fit. They were not happy where they were up in uh, 50th and 8th Avenue. They wanted to expand to larger ev- arena events, so they worked it out that Madison Square Garden right on top of regional and uh, great subway access. They would shave the station right off. And uh, it was announced and the deal was brokered in 61. It was announced in 62 to not a a large outcry uh, architecture group for uh, sorry, action group for better architecture in New York. Ag Banny did a they staged a whole thing in August of 1962, which the Times covered and said, this is a travesty, save Penn Station. But nobody was really listening because Penn was dirty. It, It didn't look great. And it was hot. People wanted an air-conditioned new jet set uh, station, which they said was coming. And then uh, mid-demolish 1965, everybody sort of looked on and said, eh, maybe this was a bad idea. So when did the landmarks law become law? 65. 65. So, you know, so mid, mid-demo as it's happening. Were there any advantages at all to the design of the new station compared to... I mean, we all lament the, the loss of Penn Station, but, you know, from a, from a transportation perspective... Were there any improvements to the way people traveled in the new station compared to the old? I'd like to say yes, uh, but I, I can't really think of a reason. Um, I think that the the only improvement was it saved the Penzi money, except they went bankrupt anyway after they merged with the New York Central, and, and that was a disaster. So in the end, it was really sort of like triage, and it, it didn't really improve much of anything mm. for the for the rider. Well, the architectural historian Vincent Sully wrote, quote, one entered the city like a god. This is with the old Penn Station. One scuttles in now like a rat. Very true. <laughs> um, I agree. <laughs> well, there are original parts of the original Pennsylvania Station that you can still see. What are they? There are. So uh, what a lot of people don't realize is the basement, the track level, and uh, basically the level once you enter in from 7th Avenue and walk towards Amtrak, that's all remnant. Uh, of the station because the demolishing of the station and the building of Madison Square Garden happened simultaneously in the 60s and neither uh, could disturb transit uh, at all. So not one day of transit was disturbed by the demolition or the construction. So they had to leave everything exactly where that was. So what do you do after that? When you open the new subterranean station, uh, basically you just cover up all the old stuff. Um, what you can see are quite a few original 1910 staircases, mainly on the LIRR concourse. Uh, the With the brass floor. handles on going down. Brass handles brass, going down. Yeah. Um, uh, some of the glass block floor, which used to transmit the light, is exposed. Well, where is the uh, glass block? So if you... I'm giving away my secrets here, but if you go... Uh, well, you have to go on the tour. Yes. <laughs> if, you, if you actually turn from the mid-corridor in LIRR down the Hilton Passageway and you look up, it's all... There's a big patch exposed if you go down to track level and look up uh, mainly track 13, 14, a whole patch of glass block four exposed. Mm-hmm. It's all covered with terrazzo on the floor level, but if you look under it, you can see the old uh, structure. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, now we have plans to transform Pennsylvania Station to something else and potentially try to recreate some of the feeling of grandeur, although the original station is lost forever. What are some of the changes that will appear when the new Penn Station shows up? So you've got Moynihan, which is uh, utilizing the post office, Farley Post Office, which was also a McKinmead and White sister building to the station. Um, and uh, that's coming next January, a little less than a year from now. 145,000 square foot. Nice big canopy ceiling, which is an allusion to the old train concourse ceiling of the old station. So a uh, little bit airier, a lot more retail, a um, little bit more modern and a lot larger. Doesn't service everybody, though. New Jersey Transit gets shafted, but uh, Amtrak, a lot of LIRR will be able to service it. And uh, Cuomo's going ahead and redoing the LIRR concourse in Penn. So he's uh, resurfacing, trying to open things up. He's adding a new entrance onto 31st Street, 7th Avenue to lead right down by the one, two, three at the back end. So 
So I suppose that if there's any silver lining in all this is that Pennsylvania Station continues to be a living, breathing organism of modern travel, or at least it always. Yes, I think it will be for a while. Well, Justin, thank you so much. My pleasure. Our first guest on our show about New York's greatest train stations has been Justin Rivers. Justin is the chief experience officer and lead tour guide of Untapped New York, which you can find out about their tours on untappednewyork.com. Yes. Excellent. Well, we'll be back in a moment with our second guest and a visit across town to Grand Central Terminal. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network at www.talkingalternative.com. Now, broadcasting 24 hours a day. Talking Alternative. Do you run or are ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. I'm the aptly named host of Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio, big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Fundraising, board relations, social media, my guests and I cover everything that small and mid-sized shops struggle with. If you have big dreams and a small budget, you have a home at Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Fridays, 1 to 2 Eastern at TalkingAlternative.com. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. We're back. Support for Rediscovering New York comes from our sponsors, the Mark Myman team, mortgage strategist at Freedom Mortgage. For assistance in any kind of residential mortgage, Mark and his team can be reached at 646-330-4735. And support also comes from the law offices of Thomas Siaka. Tom specializes in wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. Tom and his staff can be reached at 212-495-0317. Our show is about New York, especially its neighborhoods and the myriad textures of this amazing city. There's another great show on the air about New York and specifically about the business of real estate. Good Morning New York, Real Estate with Vince Rocco, my colleague at Halstead. Vince's show airs live on Tuesday mornings at 9 a.m. on voiceamerica.com and is also podcasted. You can like this show on Facebook. We're rediscovering New York with Jeff Goodman. And you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter. My handles there are JeffGoodmanNYC. If you have questions or comments, or if you'd like to get on our show's mailing list, please email me, Jeff at RediscoveringNewYork.nyc. One other note before we get to our second guest, even though Rediscovering New York is not a show about the real estate business in New York, when I am not on the air, I am indeed a real estate agent in this amazing city. I help my clients buy, sell, lease, and rent property. If you or someone you care about is considering a move into, out, over, within New York, I would love to help you with all those real estate needs. You can reach me and my team at 646-306-4761. Well, our second guest is a special guest on Rediscovering New York. She's a regular. It's Joyce Gold of Joyce Gold History Tours. Joyce is a recognized expert and educator in New York history and for over 40 years has been guiding New Yorkers and visitors alike to rave reviews through private walking tours as well as tours open to the public. Her website's JoyceGoldHistoryTours.com. Joyce has published two guidebooks. One is From Windmills to the World Trade Center, A Walking Guide Through the History of Lower Manhattan, uh, 
and also from Trout Stream to Bohemia, a walking guide through the history of Greenwich Village. She's contributed entries to the Encyclopedia of New York City. Her article, Learning on Foot, Walking Tours of New York City, appeared in the Parents League 2007 Review. And if this wasn't enough, the New York Times has called Joyce the doyenne of New York City tour guides, a level of recognition any tour guide would relish. And we welcome back to Rediscovering New York, Joyce Gold. Welcome, Joyce. Thank you, Jeff. Great to be back. Um, for those of our listeners who have not heard from you before, uh, let's talk a little bit about your background. You're not originally from this city, are you? I'm from a small town in Pennsylvania, but with my family, I moved to Queens County in New York City uh, for the ninth grade, and I have been here ever since. How did you get involved in the work you do, specifically bringing New York's history to life for the people who were lucky enough to go on your tours? Well, I was uh, working on Wall Street as a computer analyst at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, and one day all I did was walk into an old bookstore, Mendoza's bookstore that used to be on Ann Street. I think it was the oldest in town at the time. Was it older than Dauber and Pine was? or uh... <laughs> I was about that same age. It was 1890s, I think it was oh. around. Dauber and Pine, I guess, went from 13th Street to Brooklyn, and now I think they're out of business mm. also. But I picked up a 100-year-old book about New York 100 years before that. And since I was working in the oldest part of the city, uh, everything I read had to do with streets that I passed every day coming from the subway. And it changed my life. It made daily life much more interesting. So I started to design tours for New Yorkers uh, because I felt that they missed a lot of their daily experience. And then it just expanded into being good for everybody. Mm. Well, let's go to our second greatest train station, uh, Grand Central. Um, you know, like our, our chat with Justin about Pennsylvania Station, uh, there's so much to talk about in just under a half an hour. Um, don't know how we'll do it, but we'll give it a shot. Um, what were the origins of a train station at this location at 42nd Street and Park Avenue? Well, there have been three uh, terminals, three stations anyway, on the site, and the first one was in 1871. Where was the line's first terminal station? It was further downtown, yes, wasn't it? Yes, it was. It was at 26th Street. The first train uh, was in the 1830s, and that was the lower Manhattan section that it was uh, centered in at the time. Well, wasn't there also a train line that came down, the original Hudson line that came down the west side and terminated at Chambers Street before the Civil War? Like, yes. In fact, the freight station was in what is now Tribeca, just below Chambers Street. Uh, that, was, um, that was where the train terminated. There were three lines into Manhattan, and Commodore Vanderbilt controlled all three. He liked a kind of controlled situation. One of them was along the Hudson, one of them was the Harlem line, and one was the New Haven line. So there were three separate ones. And the first Grand Central, which was called the Grand Central Depot, had separate ticketing facilities and uh, other facilities for each of the three lines. Um, Commodore Vanderbilt, actually, he was not in the Navy, <laughs> although he got the name. But, of course, we can't talk about the magnificence of Grand Central without talking about him and his consolidation of the, of the three railroads. Um, why was the new Grand Central Depot set up at 42nd Street? Because it, when, when the station had been at 26th Street. Well, the, um, the lines were a little dangerous because they were steam engines for many years and steam tended to explode. And in the lower city was where more people lived. So the city uh, said to him that you can build a, a station, but it has to be away from everybody else, like 42nd Street. And so that's why he put it at that site. And with the first iteration of Grand Central Depot and then Grand Central Station, and especially the second one, um, they were very much like European train stations at the time, like St. Pancras in London and mm -hmm. the Gal du Nord in Paris. Um, and when the original Grand Central Depot was built, they actually pulled some of the trains downtown with horses. That's right. After the locomotives disconnected at 42nd Street. Uh, wasn't uh, uh, through some ordinance or regulation that you couldn't have steam below 42nd Street? That's yes, why. that's right, because steam, whether it was a fire engine or a train, would sometimes explode. And as a matter of fact, because of the horses, uh, there was a tunnel in the 1830s put through the hill, Murray Hill, uh, around 42nd Street, and that tunnel still exists, but it wasn't for us. Today, it's where cars go through, but it was for the horses because pulling the train cars up that steep hill was a little tough on them. 
Well, the original Grand Central Depot was built around 1871. Um, there was a new terminal built on the site around 1900. What were some of the innovations in the second terminal compared to the first? Well, it was about double the size. It was handling 500 trains a day. And Bradford Gilbert was the designer of that one. Uh, just to go back to Vanderbilt, he made two successive fortunes. The first was in the steamship business, but a lot of people were going west over the frontier, and he realized that steamships were not going to handle that. And so by the just after the Civil War, or at the end of the Civil War, he gets out of shipping and into railroads. So that's what got him into it. And he consolidated uh, the three railroads into the New York Central. Yes, he liked to... Cont- uh, uh, con- um, a total control of everything. And by 1871, when the depot opened, he had purchased or otherwise taken control of 17 separate lines. So you could get in at 42nd Street and stay in the train until you got to Chicago. Wow. And then did he control any of the railroads that went out west from Chicago or down south from Chicago? No, there were other big train people who did that. Shortly after the second terminal was finished in 1900, it was decided to bag it and start planning for a third incarnation of the station. Why, mm-hmm. after just a couple of years, did they decide that they were going to you know, com- take down yeah. a, a relatively new station and build another one? Well, it was going to be a huge job. It was going to take 10 years to do, and it was going to cost a great deal of money. But there were two main reasons for this. One was uh, sometimes a terrible tragedy happens, and that's what brings on great changes. And on January 6th of 19-2, the tragedy happened. Uh, the, uh, the steam engines were coming in through a tunnel into Grand Central, and the train from Norwalk saw the signal to stop. It was very congested in the tunnel, but the Westchester train did not see the signal. There was a head-on collision. 17 people immediately died. Uh, 38 people were hurt. Two guys died by trying to climb out of the window and were killed by the steam coming up from below. And one of the most gruesome things about this was that it happened under 58th Street and Park Avenue. So the people on the street heard the screams, and by the next year, the city uh, gave an ultimatum to the train company. They said, uh, you can either build your train station at the edge of Manhattan or you can electrify the train. So that was one of the main reasons that happened. But also, as you heard, the Pennsylvania Railroad was about to open in 1910 on the the turf before you had to, as Justin was saying, take a ferry boat to go to the New Jersey side to get a train. But as of 1910, you didn't. And so uh, that made the New York Central want to not only build the the, uh, the terminal, but make it really quite beautiful and competitively so. So they felt the competitive pressure from uh, the competition exactly. also that was going to start being able to bring people into New York. New York's always been about money. We were founded by the Dutch to make a profit. That's always in there somewhere. How did they, you know, unlike Pennsylvania Station, which was built from scratch, how did the, the builders of the, new, of the new Grand Central, which is an incredibly magnificent structure. How did they manage to build such a structure on a site that was still being used as an active train station? Well, they had a temporary station on 43rd Street. I'm not exactly sure where it was on 43rd Street, but that was how they were able to continue why this, while this massive mm-hmm. project was going on. How did they choose some of the design elements and the architects for, for the station? Well, they did what they often do with a big project. They put out specifications and invited certain uh, architectural firms to submit bids. They invited McKimmead and White, even though, as we heard, they were currently designing um, the, the Pennsylvania station. They d- invited Daniel Burnham of Chicago, who was currently designing the station, Union Station in Washington, but they lose out to a pair from Minneapolis, St. Paul, Reed and Stem. But after Reed and Stem won the contest, uh, one of the grandsons of Commodore Vanderbilt, who still uh, was on the board of the train company, said that he wanted to add a little touch of class. So he brought in Warren and Wetmore to work with Reed and Stem. Now, Reed Reed was coincidentally a brother-in-law of the chief engineer of the railroad, and Whitney Warren, coincidentally or not, 
was a cousin of uh, of Vanderbilt. No, no nepotism. I never, can't imagine that never. in the capitalist. <laughs> no, no, in the capitalist system. Hmm. Um, before we take it, Greg, I have a, one other question. Wasn't the new Grand Central the largest train terminal in the world when it was built? Yes, developed? it did have that reputation. And it still did. to this day, I think it's the biggest. It has the most tracks. and Yes, it's it said to have 67 tracks that are stacked on two floors. Wow, wow. Well, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Joyce Gold of Joyce Gold History Tours. We'll be back in a moment. Thank you very much. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. I'm the aptly named host of Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio, big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Fundraising, board relations, social media, my guests and I cover everything that small and mid-sized shops struggle with. If you have big dreams and a small budget, you have a home at Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Fridays, 1 to 2 Eastern at TalkingAlternative.com. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. TalkingAlternative.com back and you're back to rediscovering New York on our episodes uh, our episode on New York's two fabulous and great train stations one that's with us and one that's not we're speaking with Joyce Gold of Joyce Gold History Tours and we're speaking about Grand Central Terminal uh, Joyce what kind of upcoming tours do you have coming up well I have some fabulous tours mostly I do tours for private companies organizations individuals this morning I got a call from a woman up from uh, Dallas, up from Austin, and she wanted a tour today of the financial district. And um, interestingly, you said that she had a connection to New York history. Yes, she did. Yeah. She did. Um, she actually was originally from New York, but didn't know anything when she was here about the city. Uh, I have a tour of the Civil American Civil War in New York, which was particularly interesting to me because when a group of war buffs asked me to design it, I didn't think there was anything about the Civil War in New York. So I love designing a tour, especially when I learn a whole lot, which I almost always do designing one. And people can find out about you at, and your tours at JoyceGoldHistoryTours.com? JoyceGoldHistoryTours.com. Now, I also have public tours beginning in March where if someone's in the mood, they can just appear where it says it's $25 a person, no reservations needed. And if they contact my website, there's a way for them to get onto the emailing list. And I'm going to be doing that mailing very shortly. So I would suggest to all of your listeners that they should get to JoyceGoldHistoryTours.com to get on that list. And your tours are fabulous. Thank you. Uh, the amazing Joyce Gold, as I frequently call her. And you also have Instagram and Facebook handles, don't I you? I do, yes, indeed. And they are? They are Joyce Gold History Tours with oh. an S. All right. Uh, getting back to Grand Central Terminal, um, when the terminal was opened in 1913, it opened uh, three years after Pennsylvania Station did, what were some of the innovations that the new terminal boasted and that travelers would have, been, would have found in, in rail travel for the first time? Well, it was the first fully electrified station in the country, and it had ramps. And some of our best new ideas we often get from the past. Today, we have ferry boats for commuters. We have pedestrian use of the waterfront. 
and the idea of the ramps was an idea from ancient Rome, but it meant that with luggage, people still didn't have to use the staircases. What are some of the most notable architectural features of, of Grand Central? Well, that is a very good question. Certainly the facade is very striking. The design of it all is Beaux-Arts. It has 75-foot-high uh, windows, at least they're 75 feet high outside. Inside, they're only 60 feet high, but the combination of arches and columns made for a very grand entrance to the city. Um, they have a couple of very famous clocks there. They had a waiting room, which now serves two different purposes. It's a kind of, half of it is a permanent eatery, and the other half, uh, they have special events periodically in uh, one main difference that this is different from almost all the European stations, in Europe the stations uh, were designed for the age of steam and the big areas are for the trains, but Grand Central was designed for an electrified railroad and the big space, the trains don't, didn't need that, they were designed for the public. And Grand Central actually spurred commercial development in a way that Penn Station did not in the early days. There was mm -hmm. something that was invented with the construction of the new terminal. It became very much a New York phenomenon. Very important New York phenomenon, yes, uh, because electrifying the train, digging deeper into the uh, bedrock of the city, and building the brand new terminal was going to be very, very expensive. And so isn't the, isn't uh, Grand Central the deepest, have, has the deepest yes. basement of any structure in New yes, York? Yes, it is, very, very safe in that way. And um, the architect decided that if the city gave them the rights, basically from Third Avenue to Madison Avenue, that meant they also controlled what was over that real estate and air rights came about. And he decided that one way to get an incoming stream of rental income into the company was to put in an infrastructure for 12 different sites near the terminal so that developers could build on top of their air right and into their air rights and then pay rent on going to the company. Mm. Well, let's fast forward a little bit to the Second World War. Like Pennsylvania Station, there were a tremendous amount of, of, of war transportation efforts that went through the terminal. There were some intriguing espionage efforts during the war uh, that would have put Grand Central uh, out of commission for a while. What happened? Yes, yes. Well, in the very deep base bottom of the terminal, under the terminal, there were massive uh, bits of um, uh, machinery that changed AC electricity into DC. And somebody working there realized that all it would take was one pail of sand to be thrown into the works that would stop all the movements. And the troops were moving all along the East Coast from uh, what was being done at Grand, at Grand Central. Uh, the guy was a Nazi sympathizer. He goes to Germany. He tells the high command about all they have to do is come in with a pail of sand. But there was a shoot-to-kill order out for anybody who had a pail of sand. And there were, uh, as, uh, there were terrorists who came and tried to uh, do something about it, but they were captured. They were caught. And some of them uh, met, paid the final price for uh, yes. trying to disrupt the war effort. The two who <laughs> told uh, the, the, high, the Americans about what was happening uh, got deported after the war, but the others were electrocuted. Well, like much of technological development, uh, Grand Central and railway travel saw its heyday come and go, with, as we talked about with, with the New York, with uh, the Pennsylvania Railroad. Mm -hmm. uh, the uh, highway system, motor transportation, air transportation, uh, had railway travel fall on harder times, as happened also with the New York Central. Um, as revenue started to decline, what were some of the ways that this railroad tried to use the assets of the terminal to generate additional revenue? Well, as I mentioned about the real estate, the air rights that they were getting rent for, they sold all of that. So they got, as they were about to do in other ways, quick and dirty money. They got a big upfront package, but then they didn't have any more income in the terminal itself. They, uh, from the 50s to the 90s, Kodak, a photography company paid them half a million dollars a year to cover part of the three huge eastern windows with an ad for Kodak. 
uh, to get public interest in the space race, for maybe four weeks they attached a space rocket vertically in the main concourse and the hole that was part of the um, keeping it in place uh, is still it's visible. Still there. Yeah, still visible. Uh, Merrill Lynch had a, a booth in the concourse where you could buy stocks and uh, cars were displayed and it was very junky. Mm. Well, you know, one of the, just thinking of the city as a living, breathing organism, you know, one of the positive things that for me came out of the reduced revenue situation was the sale of the air rights in back of the terminal uh, to a company that also met its uh, yeah, its yeah. demise, but built one of the most iconic skyscrapers in the city of the 1960s, right. at least in my mind, the Pan Am building. Now the MetLife building, although I always right. think of it as the Pan Am building. I look at the way it's shaped, and uh, I that, think of Pan Am. That building opened in 1963, and when it did, it was the largest office building in the world with the most space in it. So I always think that it didn't only physically tower over Grand Central, but it also symbolically, because the planes were helping to put out of business a lot of the railroads, it also towered over symbolically. We lost Pennsylvania Station. We almost lost Grand Central. What happened and what saved it? Well, uh, there was a protest. We didn't have a landmark law, so people didn't have a, a law at first. Well, actually, we did get the landmark law in 65. But um, the city was in dire straits in the 1970s. The famous headline, President Ford to New York dropped dead. We weren't seeming to get federal funds. And um, tell me your question again. Oh, uh, <laughs> how did uh, a Grand Central almost oh, was destroyed? How was it saved? It almost was destroyed. Well, the, uh, uh, the, the successor to uh, the New York Central Railroad and Pennsylvania, the Pennsylvania, I think it was called Penn Central, they wanted to raise it to build new things, like what like what happened with the Pennsylvania That's Station. Right. Well, but, because the city was in such bad shape, uh, ideas that the railroad had within the landmark limitations included having Marcel Breuer have a building cantilevering. This was prior to the Pan Am building cantilever over Grand Central. That idea was rejected. And the railroad threatened to sue the city of New York, which considered giving up the building because they didn't feel they could uh, handle the lawsuit when very famously Jackie Kennedy uh, called the head of the Municipal Arts Society and said we can't just give up our cultural heritage. And for 10 years, a simple question went through the court system up to the US Supreme Court in 1978. And the question was, does a municipality in the public interest have the right to limit the almost sacred rights of property owner? And had the Supreme Court in 78 said, no, not only would we not have that building, but there would be no landmarking in the United States. So it's always very risky to go to the high court. But Jackie was very influential. I remember after the annual MAS meeting, Mass, uh, Municipal Arts Society meeting, uh, after Jackie had come in early, very visibly sat in the front row by herself, after the two or so hour meeting, uh, all the paparazzi and all the media people would co would converge on Jackie. And, of course, she was heavily listened to in Washington as well. So people listened to what she thought. And she helped save Grand Central. Uh, to most people, she was known primarily as the wife of the 35th president and later of Aristotle Onassis. But she did play a major role in saving Grand Central and other parts of our, of our cultural heritage. Mm -hmm. Um, one other thing before we sign off, getting back to uh, Grand Central's uh, better days, uh, one of the most famous phrases that's with us today originated in Grand Central, the red carpet treatment. Oh, yes. Do you want to talk about that? Well, the most elegant railroad was the 20th century, and it went from New York to Chicago. And then if you wanted to go to the West Coast in Chicago, you went by Super Chief. But uh, they had a red carpet that said 20th century on it. And right before it was supposed to leave, they rolled it out, and celebrities and others went on the red carpet. Uh, which was quite interesting. 
although we might have had our prior guests say that the Broadway Limited was more of the glamorous train. The Broadway Limited went from Pennsylvania Station to Chicago by a way, I think, of Pittsburgh. Did it? Yes, it did. Okay. Well, one of the innovations at Grand Central also was the idea of red caps. In 1895, the idea of not a porter, but somebody who was there to help you with your luggage was very uh, useful. And then beginning 10 years later, there were up to 500 red caps at Grand Central. That was the figure in 1939. And it was almost, it was completely, almost completely African-American. And it was a way for young uh, African-American men to make enough money to pay their tuition. These were almost all college-bound people. Wow. I'm reading a great book about that by Eric Washington uh, called The Boss of the... um, of the Red Caps. Boss of the Red Caps. All right. Well. Grips. Boss of the Grips. Boss of Sorry. the Grips. Wow. Cool. All right. Well, thank you, Joyce. Our second guest has been Joyce Gold, the amazing Joyce Gold of the Joyce Gold History Tours. You can find out about her tours at JoyceGoldHistoryTours.com. Well, everyone, we've just finished this week's journey to New York's two greatest train stations of all time, one, sadly, which is not with us in its original incarnation, but one which is and hopefully will be with New York forever. If you have comments or questions about the show or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. You can like us on Facebook, and you can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter. My handle there on those places is jeffgoodmannyc. Once again, I'd like to thank our sponsors, the Mark Myman team, mortgage strategist at Freedom Mortgage, and the law offices of Tom Siaka, specializing in wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. One more thing before we sign off, I'm Jeff Goodman, a real estate agent at Halstead in New York City, and whether you're selling, buying, leasing, or renting, my team and I are dedicated to our clients and come to our work with passion and also bring the best expertise in New York City real estate. You can reach us at 646-306-4761. Our producer is Ralph Storier. Our engineer this evening is Sam Leibowitz, and thanks to Sam for a little bit of extra time to get to our train stations. Our special consultant is David Griffin of Landmark Branding. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Radio, 24 hours a day. Do you run or are ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. I'm the aptly named host of Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio, big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Fundraising, board relations, social media, my guests and I cover everything that small and mid-sized shops struggle with. If you have big dreams and a small budget, you have a home at Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Fridays, 1 to 2 Eastern at TalkingAlternative.com. Hey, all you crazy listeners. Looking to boost your business? Why not advertise on Talking Alternative with very reasonable rates? Interested? Simply email at info at TalkingAlternative.com. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network.
at www.talkingalternative.com. Now, broadcasting 24 hours a day. Talking Alternative. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. 